Welcome to Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adam and Teen Energy. In this season, I'm focusing on two essential ingredients for leadership today. A vision for the energy future that is so compelling that even your skeptical stakeholders will find it compelling. And the second is how to execute on the nuts and bolts of that vision in a way that provides proof points. These themes are woven throughout my conversation today with Samer El-Shahabi. He's the principal lead of energy transition at the UAE Climate Change Special Envoy. You'll hear about how he got this role. Before COP28, he was responsible for for engaging with and convening leaders to deliver an actionable and impactful agenda around energy for COP. He also has other areas of focus, which you'll hear him talk about in our conversation today. Samer has spent 19 years at Occidental Petroleum, working as general counsel and, and executive vice president to international oil and gas. He has been seconded for this role regarding COP. He has a JD from Columbia Law. You can learn more about Samer's biography in our show notes. And I really think you're going to enjoy my conversation today with Samer El-Shahabi. I'd also like to provide a thank you to Matt Kolazar, our colleague and prior guest from ExxonMobil, who created the recommendation and introduction for today's conversation. Samer El-Shahabi, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you played a big role in COP28, and I'd love for you to just start with telling our audience about what your responsibilities were. How did you land there? and a little bit of that experience from your perspective. Sure. So this was the furthest thing from my expectations when I got the call November, I think the day after Thanksgiving, November of 22. I've been an employee at Occidental in the US, and I had a lot of experience with Abu Dhabi through that, that dated back all the way to 2002. So I had a strong relationship with a lot of the key energy folks and leaders in the country. So I got a call saying, we have this opportunity to do the COP. Would you like to go slash you're going? (laughs) And I said, can I think about it? They said, yes, but this is something we think you should do. And so I didn't know anything about COP, to be blunt. And so I quickly kind of came up to speed as to what is COP? What does it mean to be in COP? And then I finally showed up in Abu Dhabi a month later to start meeting the team to understand what it was all about and quickly understood why I was to do this. But it was really something I had never planned on, never expected to be a part of. You know, it was probably one of the best professional experiences I've had. It's extraordinary when life serves you up these momentous opportunities personally and professionally. In in this case, you also happen to have a tremendous effect, I think, on our industry, on our colleagues, just the grace with which you engaged in your work. From your perspectives, What were you able to accomplish? And maybe were there any surprises for you about that experience? When I arrived to Abu Dhabi, I should clarify. So the COP itself happened in Dubai, but a large part of the team, in fact, because it was run through a federal group out of the UAE and the capitals at Abu Dhabi, we were based in Abu Dhabi. So when I arrived to Abu Dhabi, the energy team was, didn't exist. We didn't even have something called the energy team. We had something called strategy. We had partnerships. But it was clear that the topic of energy was going to be a core element of the COP. And so we were tasked with coming up with an agenda. We were told by the leadership, 
we know this is going to be an important energy transition is going to be the is a key element that we the united arab emirates want to push at this cop and if i may just take a moment to clarify kind of the dynamics of how the agenda is set the unfccc the united nations framework convention on climate change this is what the cop is all about right the, the conference of the parties happens every year there's been 27 we were the 28th there's a there's a very robust institutional process for that that's run through the united nations so every year there's a different country we happen to have it 28 29 is going to be in azerbaijan 30 is going to be in brazil but each of the host countries has the discretion to also put together a program on topics it believes are important for the climate agenda of the day and the top process itself is a consensus process where you need all 198 99 parties to agree to but what we called the presidency agenda was something that we could be a little bit more selective about it could be focused on fewer countries or very specific topics and when you start the cop you don't know what's going to happen at the cop itself the outcome of the negotiations so that machine takes its own process we had the ability to create our own agenda on a topic that we felt as the UAE was important and that was energy and what brought this even a little bit more sensitive was the fact that as a big oil and gas producer there was a big spotlight on how will this country take on energy in the transition and the decarb debate when itself is an OPEC member for example so that's just by way of background so i i showed up to abu dhabi we compiled quickly a small team we had to sit down and kind of assess based on some engagements what were the key topics and we put together kind of a a high level framework of what we wanted to address and our motto at the time was what will move the needle what will move the needle on the way energy helps with climate solutions and we had to address the elephant in the room which was oil and gas which is kind of my bread and butter but at the same time we chose three other big topics one was renewables the third one was hydrogen and the last one was heavy industry cement steel aluminum transport and what we then did is say okay what is the status of their climate engagement what is the industry doing what can we do as a cop to push this further to make it an outcome that shows that energy has a part to play in climate it's not just planting more trees but it's how you use energy it's the new energies that are needed for the future energy system so that's how we started your question about what surprised me the most that's a podcast probably in itself <laughs> but in a nutshell what surprised me the most was the disparity in the thinking about the role of energy in the modern world that it was such a polarizing topic when you talk about it in an academic sense to the point that people forget the practicalities of life and what it means to have energy in your life let me give you an example so one of my early engagements on the oil and gas side was to engage with the national oil companies of Africa and they have an organization that's called APPO the African Petroleum Producers Organization So they had a meeting coming up in March of 23. It happened to be in a country that I know a lot about which is Algeria. I got connected with the secretariat and I said I'd like to come to talk to you about COP. And the first answer was don't come talk to us about what we can and can't do. 
don't come tell us we can't produce. And I said, that's not why I'm coming. I'm coming to talk to you about how you can be a part of this. There was a delicacy about how you engaged. And I think the fact that I came from the industry helped me with those discussions because they knew somebody was coming in who understood the business. But the shocking part overall for a lot of the engagements was the lack of awareness as to the depth of the energy issue in our societies and how people just felt you could just flip a switch and plug in your car to a magic outlet and it'll be charged up. It shocked me a little bit about how idealistic some of the conversations were that we had, particularly with certain countries like Germany, for example. We would meet with folks who were, well, why don't you talk about no more oil and gas? So we would push back and say, well, why don't we talk about no more coal now that you've raised the amount of coal you're using? And they just would want to ignore the practicalities, and the realistic scenarios the world was in. So that was the hardest part of this job, was to try to get basic engagement, thoughtful discussion so that we could show real progress. I remember one conversation I had, communications is a big deal. That was the other thing I learned a lot about at Cotton, how you communicate a lot of this. I remember having a conversation with somebody from the comms team who I remember very, very pointedly said, the game, the name of the game is comms. I don't care about emissions. I care about the headline. And I said to them, I can give you the best headline in the world, but it will achieve a zero. So do you want to achieve something or do you want to have a good headline? And that was a big debate because there's a spectrum as to what you want to push industries to do. And then there's the reality out there as to what they want to do and what they can do and what their customers are requiring. So it was a lot of back and forth about landing the right balance and how you communicate that. Samara, I think you just laid out so many important elements, even back to your opening objective of moving the needle, which needle, right? The needle of reducing emissions, the needle of more participants at the table, the needle of the headlines, the needle of transcending these very oversimplified, polarized perspectives on the debate. And in all of that, you, I think, conveyed very articulately why I have been so interested in talking to you. And I, and I do want to say, I think this COP did something that has never been done before, which is created a space to begin pragmatic conversations. And we can't evolve this conversation in one sitting. So to have oil and gas countries and companies at the table is momentous. In years past, many of our audience members and many of our clients here at Adamantine literally weren't invited to participate. And if you can't participate, how can you contribute to the outcomes? So I, I just I just think it's extraordinary what you've been able to accomplish. I would love to get your two cents. You, you've said in, in many conversations ar around COP that this isn't just about government action. There's many other players. And, and I want to specifically ask you about companies and the role of companies in capitalism. You invoke heavy emitting industries that need to decarbonize in many energy sectors. What do you think the role of companies will be? And what ways can companies move the needle? Yeah, no, 100%. I think when you talk to companies on a one-on-one -on -one basis, I think between their shareholders, between their own employees, between the communities that they're working with, they feel the importance of at least putting in their calculus the impact on the environment. It is an important topic for them to consider in their investment decisions and their business plans, et cetera. 
So I think on a on a more micro level, I think you have that awareness very much there. What we found was that's kind of where, again, speaking for myself, that's where they're comfortable. Okay. They want to do their part, but they don't want anybody to tell them how to do it. Okay. Which is understandable. Right. I mean, it's your company. You'll follow the rules. You have your own business plans and expectations. So you want to implement it. However, when we came together, particularly through industry groups, right? So when we focused on, we would engage with, for example, in cement, the Global Cement and Concrete Association, GCCA. When we talked to them in that context, in the group context, you found that they were ready to do more and talk about how collectively to do more when they were a part of the planning and dictating what to do, mm-hmm. right? So the way we went about engaging with industries was to say, look, we're not here to tell you what to do. We all know what the problem is out there. What are your thoughts? Have them be a participant in the discussion. And we found, depending on the industry, some more than others, there was a real willingness and eagerness to put forward concrete plans, concrete milestones, specific targets, etc. I do think companies can move the needle. I think the first part, though, is identifying where is the needle today. And I don't think that's clear in every industry. There's a huge disparate understanding of what is the the status of the problem. Nobody wants to admit how big it is. And I'll give you an example. Methane was a very big topic this year. And 10 years ago, there was no real way to independently verify how much a particular company, plant, oil field was emitting. You kind of had to do much more localized inspections and et cetera, and measurement. Now you have satellite, you have more, let's say, independent means of verification. And so you'll find even with those companies not wanting to buy into what those independent tests show. And I think that's the first part of this. It's accepting the problem, accepting the scope of the problem, and then you go after the solution. And I think what we did this year at COP, name the industry, we said to everybody, you're going to be part of the solution, but you don't know what to solve till we figure out the size of your problem. A lot of people think they know what the problem is, and maybe they're right, maybe they're off, maybe they're exaggerating. But we found a lot more companies starting to say, okay, I'm willing to try to figure out how big of a problem I've got. Let's identify where the needle is, and then let's figure out what it takes to move the needle. You'd have a lot of pundits say, methane is low-hanging fruit. It's the easiest uh, GHG to knock out. And you'll sit with a company that knows what they're talking about and say, it's not that easy. It's a lot of money. It takes a lot of planning. It's a lot of capital, and it disrupts your business. It's easy for me to say it's easy, but it's not really easy. So it's it's just we have to keep the conversation moving. We have to start pushing for the most basic level of as a acceptance of where the needle is today before we can talk about where we're going to move it. There's a couple of really interesting things about that in your framing around companies. One is offering companies a seat at the planning table 
takes them out of the of the villain role that there was a villain and they did this horrible thing and we're going to make them stop. That's a very difficult framing to engage partnership. But a different thing is, as you know, as a society, we've we've met all of these shared needs and now we have a shared problem and we need to name it, quantify it and sort out the trade offs of addressing it. That's a table we all want to be at. And I think the way you're framing it is making room for different participants. The other thing that that really struck me about the not knowing the size of the problem is some of the oversimplification of the solutions is also not understanding the size of the problem. Like by, by saying we need to get off A, B, and C in ways that don't acknowledge economies that are still trying to move millions of people into the middle class. These are uh, entire industries that we don't have a an economic alternative for. Understanding the size of the problem is a very basic need across the spectrum of this conversation. And I just love the pragmatism, dare I say sensitivity, to the communication needs around the invitation, the invitation to participate in solutions. If I may just add to that point, one of the dilemmas that I, again, I came in without the burden of history, I like to say. Yeah, I heard about climate and coughs and et cetera, but I didn't know anything. And I didn't know really particularly the, the community that's built on this whole climate phenomenon. What disappointed me more than anything was the relatively few number of NGOs and environmentally leading groups that were even willing to sit and talk in a practical way. There are some out there and we latched onto them and we brought them in to be part of the conversations. And that was a big part of what we did at COP to make sure that this was a credible effort, particularly on the oil and gas side, is we had engagement with, let's say, the environmental groups that were ready to talk, the academic groups, the scientific community. It wasn't a be all and buy all of the, of the industry itself. We stress tested everything with these, let's say, uh, more independently minded groups, but there are not that many out there. It's actually very difficult to find that counterpart that's ready to sit down and say, okay, here's a way forward. Here's why it works. It will result in real change. It's not a light switch where you can just flip it and tomorrow it's done. There needs to be a transition that takes time and takes investment and takes into consideration, as you mentioned, some of the practical realities. We put together this oil and gas decarbonization charter. This was kind of one of the keynote outcomes of the COP. And if you compared version one to the final version that was signed, you see the evolution of the text to recognize the realities of energy security, energy poverty, the differentiation between where different companies are in their own process. I mean, I had to negotiate this with the most leading environmentally friendly oil and gas companies that you can probably know to start up African NOCs that haven't even produced a barrel, but have found the mother load somewhere and are ready to, to get ready for it. So we made sure, and that was an important element of the credibility of this COP, to work with the collective organizations out there that could actually engage thoughtfully on the topic but part of the challenge was finding those organizations. So much of what you're describing is if moving the needle ultimately is moving the needle on decarbonizing and emissions, these very pragmatic considerations acknowledging energy needs are so central to progress. Otherwise, we're having 
a conversation about getting off oil and gas, for example, in one corner. In another corner, there's just economies developing with dirty fuels without consideration. That's their imperative and their understandable imperative. So I just really respect the much more difficult, much more nuanced conversation that you're creating. But all of us who are committed to progress in all its forms, including security and addressing, alleviating energy poverty through prosperity, all of us who are committed have to first and foremost commit to the realities that this is this is hard, this is messy, it's complicated, <laughs> this is this is gonna be difficult. I'm curious, your career has taken you all around the world. How has your perspective on the future of energy changed, particularly with this most recent chapter? What like how do you imagine the next era of energy development and use? I see it becoming a much more integrated element of development. I mean, energy and the energy companies of the world dating back 100 plus years have always been an important part of economic development, socioeconomic development, to provide the resource to power an economy. But what I learned a lot this last year was those same companies really possess a lot of the skills that are necessary to drive a cleaner economic future. And I see there being an evolution of these companies to becoming not everybody. Some are going to stay, you know, hard and true to their their past of, of how they want to make their buck. But I think the ones that want to be future proofed are going to evolve to at least have a very important element of the skills that have been developed in the traditional energy business to be utilized in clean tech, in carbon management, in environmental management. And I think those are the ones that are going to be the leaders of the future that will actually be able to balance energy needs of the world with the environmental climate needs of the world. It's clear enough the whole world's not aligned on that. Every part of it's got its own evolution that it's going to go through. And I've seen, I presented at the COP, and the very last slide I showed was a, we had a global world map. I think it was probably the hit of the show that showed that on a map, the national oil companies and the international oil companies that we had signed up. We had 52. And you could see we had all six continents, which was great. We had 30, or we had the, the vast majority be national oil companies, which was really the game changer, right? Because people forget it's not the companies that you fill your car up that are the ones that are their big problems. It's the ones that are producing 85% of the world's production, which are the ones you've never heard of, the nationally owned companies. And we, we managed to get 30 of them, which was unheard of. And just by way of comparison, you know, people know OGCI very well, which is a leading organization that started you know, about 10 years ago. But even OGCI has only three national oil companies. We managed to get 30. So that moves the needle, right? It's getting those types of companies, the ones that have never really been part of this space, start engaging to start identifying what their future plans are, how are they going to start baselining their emissions, how are they going to change their investment profile to make sure they're putting more to manage the carbon. Those are the ones that are going to future-proof themselves and will evolve and eventually be the ones, the last, the last producers standing, in my view. That's extraordinary. Congratulations on, on that participation. Let me ask you, one of the most, I think one of the more intractable challenges 
we have is the collective need as a, as a world to bring billions of people to into the middle class, of which a huge component will be industrial scale access to energy so that economies can modernize. You have had a front row seat to the just how challenging this is. And, and one of the things we're advising in our work and in the, through this podcast is that, that we not further exacerbate polarization by making this an either or choice, that it's it's not raise people out of energy poverty, give them access to a middle class or addressing climate. This is about navigating the trade-offs of those decisions. How have you come to think about that in developing economies and those economies with large populations actively on their way to the middle class? How do you think about decarbonization and addressing climate in that context? Great question. So we spent a considerable amount of time trying to focus on the two most populous countries, China and India. And in fact, I went to India and I had a series of meetings there with the leading energy companies of India. A, to advocate for our agenda, for them to participate at the COP. But B, more importantly, I think, from my personal perspective, to learn about what's happening in India. It's huge. And what I found was, and you need to your point earlier about how do companies move the needle, you still need the leadership of government to kind of keep the very high level policy perspectives on that development balance. And I think when we met in India with a number of companies, what I learned from a lot of them was they're learning from the mistakes of a lot of the other countries, right? Especially when it comes to the efficiency and the processes for oil and gas utilization. Okay. Now, India is not a big oil and gas producer, but it's a huge market. And what they've been able to figure out is where does it make sense to use oil and hydrocarbon products? And where is it better for them to just kind of accelerate to the next phase? And I think you're going to see more and more countries do that. They're going to be selective on how they use oil and gas, whether they're going to use it as baseload production, whether they use it for chemicals and industries, whatever the right mix is for their own particular economies. But at the same time, trying to leapfrog, I've used, I've heard that word several times, leapfrog into the, the kind of the, the industries and the, and the energy sources that maybe others have just started to get into. So I see it as a very dynamic and, and exciting thing. I mean, one person, one, one of the companies I met with they said, our calculus in India is not between oil and gas and renewables. It's between coal and renewables because of the cost factor. They've managed to find a way to get renewables, solar and wind, at a price point that makes coal the alternative. They said, oil and gas is expensive for us now. And so I think you're going to see more and more of that now. That's just a specific case because of the dynamics of the electricity market in India. But I think you're going to see a lot of countries kind of put that calculus to test what makes sense for them, what creates an industry for them. And that's the other thing in India, for example. The renewables industry creates big business and jobs for India. If you don't have oil and gas, you can't just make it and then create an industry out of it. Whereas this, you can. right? The manufacturing and the science and the technology side of it and the IP so I think it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how energy is going to be a very important element to the planning for how countries manage both their socioeconomic development, but also their climate uh, expectations. 
Well, Samer, what you're offering, I think, is a novel definition of leapfrogging, which is leapfrogging inefficiency, leapfrogging, maybe having energy insecurity by being dependent on others for your energy, leapfrogging emissions where we know how to capture emissions. So I, I think that's a, I haven't thought of it in that context uh, because leapfrogging, I, I think, has been one of those things that's been oversimplified. We're going to somehow leapfrog industrialization, which we're clearly not. But I like the idea of leapfrogging poor decisions and accelerating investment into the balance of these trade-offs around security, around efficiency, around emissions, but also around uh, prosperity and affordability and reliability. Really interesting. Probably the question that most drove me wanting to get you here. We This podcast and our work advises oil and gas executives. You've just spent a ton of time with people all around the world who are extremely skeptical of the sincerity and the ability of oil and gas companies of all kinds and countries to participate. What's your advice for leaders, particularly of oil and gas companies? What's your advice on how to engage in ways that can help bridge that trust divide? That was kind of issue number one when we started this oil and gas effort was the credibility and the trust factor. And what we wanted to do, and we created this through this oil and gas carbonization charter, was to create a framework to start rebuilding the trust. And that framework included a very discrete set of what we call principles, but with a broader intention for the industry to start becoming more transparent, become more effective in its its kind of its planning on the coming five to seven to 10 years in terms of how to go about these issues. Right now, we're putting together the governance framework for the charter and the work plan for this year to start helping the industry with getting that credibility back. So if a company X or Y comes to me and says, you know what, we hear you, we want, we want to be a part of it, what's the first thing we should do? I would say, let's examine what you have today. Let's examine what's your mix of production. Let's examine how you produce. For example, we did a lot of engagement with Canadian oil sands companies. That's a very different business model than an offshore natural gas producer. And depending on your business, depending on your country, you have to sit down and say to yourself, okay, you understand every company, and this is something I, I have a lot of respect for, every company knows its business best. There's nobody from the outside that knows a company better than the company knows itself. So for those that are sincere, there's a clear set of, I would say, basic questions that we need to answer. Okay. And once those questions become clarified, it's really a policy decision and a leadership decision for the company itself on whether it wants to be out there to promote how it's transforming. And it's not an easy decision. It's really about where does, where does it want to be in five years, in 10 years? You know, some have gone so far to say that this is the future of your license to operate. Maybe not in the most legal regulatory sense, but definitely in the more community and you know, social sense to show that you are producing the energy or producing the product for the feedstock, but you're doing it in a, you know, an environmentally and climate friendly way. What we started to advocate to many of the companies we met with was just like you have a zero injury goal, this is the new zero injury goal. 
zero harm to climate. Maybe that's a little bit too strong for some to accept right away, but it's a mindset. And I think many companies that we found are eager to get involved. They know that their product is important to the world. They're not just doing this for lip service. They're doing it because they know fundamentally their business will become more sustainable and, and future-proofed if they're ready to start becoming more engaged in the, in the scope of the problem, in this, where is the needle, in the investments required. And I think we expect, at least this is me personally speaking, that they will be rewarded for it. They will be rewarded for it. And I think it's a hard pill to swallow because it's not a guarantee. But if you step back and you say, just like it's important for us not to have anybody injured on the, in, on the job or in the field, this is just as important to us. And it's the right thing to do. And we go after it. Not everybody's going to believe in it. Right? I mean, one of the things I will, I will just want to add kind of a related point. If you talk to a lot of climate advocates, they say oil and gas companies should change their investment mix to be 50-50, for example, with renewables. And we didn't buy that at COP. So that's not, nobody tells you how to spend your money. Some companies want to be renewables. That's their business. Some want to do IT. Some want to sell pharmaceuticals. That's the beauty of how a business is developed and how it becomes a good business. What we want to do is to talk about the impact of whatever business you choose to be in. And that's why you'll see we didn't harp too much on scope three for a large part because it's not a very clear concept, particularly in the oil and gas space. The climate advocate would say that's wrong. But when you actually dig into it, there is a way for what we say our customers scope one and two to actually come down. But I, in effect, raise my scope three. For example, you're a power plant that, that burns coal. You have very high emissions. But you come to an oil and gas company and say, I'd like to buy gas so I can change my burners. So my scope one and two go way down. But because I produce more product, my quote scope three went up. That's not the right answer, right? We should talk about things in the more holistic, collective sense of emissions. So I'm rambling a little bit, but my point is that if we focus on what is the ultimate problem, then we can focus on how the little steps will make a big difference. I think a particular company doesn't have to see itself as the be-all and end-all to the climate issue, but it can look at its four walls and its, its footprint and fix itself. And if every company does that, you're going to make a huge impact. Samer, I think what I find so compelling about what you're saying is essentially if you want to build trust, there's a tremendous audience out there that is skeptical of the role of oil and gas companies in the energy future. One of the first things you have to do is just say, there is a problem. Let's look at our contribution and our ability to participate in the solution. And that is and that is something that we are arguing is table stakes. The piece that you did that not too many people have an opportunity to do is work on the other side, the solutions table, and make sure there are seats available for companies to show up. And so I think that it's those two things. We have actually a unique, unprecedented opportunity to transform in the in the years ahead based on some of the work that you have done here. And I find that really exciting. And I don't take for granted how hard you had to work to make that possible. So thank you for your efforts. One more thing. I will. I just want to add on, on the trust point. I'm sorry I didn't, I didn't nail this one head on, but the time will tell whether we did the right thing, right? 
COP29, COP30, as we mobilize the initiatives that were announced at COP28, and there's a lot of effort being and resources being put to actually implement, for example, this oil and gas charter, that will be the true test. And this is what we told the companies for COP28. We said, you can kiss your chance for the future to be at any COP goodbye if you don't come to this COP and start a process where you prove to the world that you don't, you, you're entitled to those staple stakes in the future by being able to show this is where we started, this is what we've achieved, and this is where we're going. To give that world, you're not going to convert everybody. We know that, right? And the industry knows that. So if anybody thinks they're going to convert the world, you're just, you should just don't kid yourself. But we know that the proof will be in the pudding in the future when we show the results of what we did. And that's going to take time, but it's going to take a very specific, focused effort by each entity that wants to do this, whether it's oil and gas or any other entity, to show that they were serious. Then the, the public will judge. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And it, it speaks to this idea that there has to be a shared aspiration and a strong vision but it has to be backed up now with the equivalent of steel in the ground, quantitative proof, third-party verification. The day of aspiration alone, that th those days are over. And you have set up the conditions in which companies can participate. And that is a tremendous opportunity, I think, for us all to transform the, the, the nature of this conversation in the years ahead. Samara, I want to end with two kind of personal questions to get to know you a little bit more. There's a very sweet piece in the New York Times. I love their love section, and it features you and your wife and how you met in the energy industry. I therefore imagine that all of this energy work is close to your heart. Can you talk a little bit from a personal perspective of what this work means to you, what you hope to see come out of the work that you're doing? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> so as I mentioned, when I started, I didn't know what to expect. I grew up in a family of medical professionals. I was the odd man out. I went to law school. And I saw the direct impact my father and my brother made in their work. I remember when my father passed away, one of his closest oldest friends said, think about how many kids his life he touched to make their life better. I didn't have that as a, you know, in what I was doing professionally. <laughs> and I'm not saying this is the equivalent, but I'd like to think that maybe we started something that would help. And I have four kids that will help them have a better perspective. I mean, I was very lucky to have my oldest with me at call. She came, she's a college student. She was there. She volunteered. She got totally exposed into all of it to understand the scope of what we're dealing with. And so for me, that was a big driver by the end. In the beginning, it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Let me figure this out. I understand it intellectually, but it didn't get personal till the very end. So I hope, and we'll see. And I have now built a very strong personal connection with a lot of the companies that we, we advocated this with and some of the organizations and the environmental groups that we're actually having good conversations with. So it's become kind of part of my DNA. And I hope to kind of continue in the space so that I can take what I've learned and and grow it as well as help others come along the same path so they see the impact it can have in their own personal as well as their own professional life. There's no doubt in my mind that you have played a transformative role in the trajectory. Now it's incumbent upon all of us to participate and deliver. There's no doubt in my mind. So a final question, Samara, I ask all my guests, what are you most optimistic about? With respect to this work, what I'm really most optimistic about is that you've changed 
if you rewind one year and we went to the Sierra Week conference in Houston in March, and the idea that we were talking about oil and gas being at a cop, and that's just like sneaking in, but being there loud and proud was like blasphemy. By the end of it, yeah, not everybody was happy, but people got it. People started to get it. They started understanding why it was happening. So what I'm optimistic about is the fact that that will continue and it will get to the point of more meaningful engagement for the industry in the climate space, not just at a COP once a year, but just on a more granular level, on a more regular level, where the communities can start to talk to each other, can start to understand each other, can start to maybe almost imagine a world where you would have an environmental group basically supporting the climate plans of an energy company and vice versa, an energy company supporting an environmental organization and what it's trying to do. That for me would be the culmination of this effort where you would see a true partnership across that spectrum where they start to at least maybe not fully agree, but understand each other and understand the importance of each other's perspectives and realities. And that based on that, incremental change can happen to the ultimate goal of energy security, affordability, and climate neutrality. So I'm optimistic. We've started something. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to come down to the organizations that are all signed up, as well as to grow that. But I, I feel we're on the right path. And I think we just need to expand that membership that we started and to get real projects. Like you said, steel on the ground, money spent, plans in place, reporting, transparency, having the companies ready to come out and talk about where their needle is. And then hopefully it takes the right path forward. Well, Samer, that optimistic view is the world I also plan to create. So I share your optimism. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Energy Things podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much and uh, wish you all the best in all your other future ones. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Samer for joining me. I found so much interesting in this conversation. It reinforces a lot of our working ideas here at Adam and Teen about how companies can be a part of transforming the conversation of building trust and securing that social license to operate, which is so important in all the things that we want to accomplish as companies. I'm really interested to hear about what you enjoyed. So I hope you'll take a moment and reach out at energythinks.com. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It helps other people find us. I'd like to thank Lindsay Slaughter, who's making all things podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.